Welcome back to the podcast Unbinding the Bible. This is episode 58, Revelation, Dwelling Amidst Satan's Throne. And in this episode, we're going to look at Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, which are Jesus' words to the Christians in the city of Pergamum. And we're going to find here for one of the first times a church that is both faithful to Jesus in some respects and is very unfaithful to him in others. And so the words of the one who has the sharp two-edged sword is going to come to this particular church. And we're going to take a little bit of a look at just what Jesus does when part of a church is following him faithfully and another part isn't. And I think you'll be encouraged by this. And this is a very hopeful message to anyone who has some aspects of their life and character that are in line with Jesus while other parts are struggling and what we ultimately can do about it. So let's just dive right in. To begin this week's episode, allow me just to read Revelation 2, 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone, with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Now, Jesus' words to this particular church, again, he addresses this church by some aspect of his character that this church needs to know in order to be faithful to him. And the aspect of his character he addresses here is the fact that he is the one speaking the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And again, as we've looked at in previous episodes, recognizing that this most likely is the sword of his mouth I think is reiterated in this simple phrase, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. So his words are able to penetrate. His words are able to divide. And his words can be received as both comfort and judgment at the exact same time, depending upon what your actions are deserving of. And Pergamum is the perfect place for this to be demonstrated because you have some members of this church who are faithful and you have other members who have slipped away and have adopted the teaching of Balaam. And we'll look at that in just a second. But for Pergamum, it's helpful for us to realize that Pergamum was a city in some sense similar to Smyrna. It had high standing in the Roman Empire um, back in 29 BC. Permission was granted to the citizens of Pergamum to erect and dedicate a temple to Augustus. And so here we have some of the same ideas, religious superstition, um, a, a prominence in the city to Roman culture, the Roman cult, um, the cult of the empire. So the situation that the church in Pergamum is facing is not primarily one 
of whether they're going to be able to live out their faith and, and not die for it is rather for whether they're going to compromise their faith in any way with the surrounding culture. And this again is going to hint back to us why we need to understand the story of Balaam. And so let's just start with verse 13 where Jesus gives the words, I know. Again, this is a repeated phrase used in all seven addresses to every one of the churches. But the phrase, I know, here he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And I just want to stop on this for just a second um, because I had a conversation with a good friend and kind of a gathering of friends um, a few weeks back. And one of the statements made was, it's very hard for me to see that God's plan of redemption is active in the world because there's so much corruption. There's so much distortion. There's so much chaos everywhere you look, injustice, uh, pain and suffering and, and on and on. And the conversation kind of centered around that for just a moment. And the fact is, my friend is right. It's hard to know that God is actively at work in the world in and through the church for the benefit and the blessing of the whole world because the place looks terrible at times. And Pergamum was exactly the same way, being being this heightened place of temple worship to the Caesar and, and obviously in similar ways to the church in Smyrna when culturally you're expected to bow to the whims and the ways of Rome or bow to the whims of, of Babylon, this sort of thing. But Jesus begins his address to the church by saying, Hey guys, I know where you live. I know the kind of culture that you're plopped right down in the middle of. I know that everybody in your culture wants to exalt and, and honor the emperor as divine. I know that it's increasingly hard to follow me. And yet Jesus tucks in one other opportunity to let us know that the reason why it's this way is because this is Satan's throne. And it's interesting because, you know, you, you talk about a temple set up to Augustus and in temples, you know, the God or whoever it was that you are worshiping is going to take his seat on his throne. And so you literally do have these kinds of images circulating. Jesus is saying Pergamum while Rome acknowledges it as the place where the Caesar dwells and where the where Caesar's throne is, you know, quote unquote, Jesus um, brings us back to our attention to recognize that this is actually where Satan's throne is, and so he both identifies Rome as this new embodiment on earth where Satan's work is being done. But he also encourages the church by the simple fact that he knows that the things they're dealing with in their church are real and they're hard and their enemy really is Satan. And so Jesus's words are like a sharp two-edged sword. They're able to penetrate and they're able to provide truth, but also judgment. And we're going to see in just a second why that's the case. And so he begins his statement. He says, you hold fast my name. You haven't given up your testimony. You haven't given up your witness. And you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, this is just beautiful because here Jesus flat out calls one man. There's a man named Antipas. We don't know a lot about him historically. All we know is that he is identified by Jesus as his faithful witness 
who was killed among you. He was killed somehow because of Satan's opposition to the spread of the gospel. We don't know why. We don't exactly know how. Again, Jesus is not addressing Pergamum as a city or Rome as a nation as the enemy. He's twice now said, Satan dwells here. Satan is opposing the faithful witness of me here. Satan is your enemy. He's the one on the throne of this culture. I know you're here, but some did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas. So he's encouraging this church saying, I understand where you live. I understand what's going on around you. And I want to commend you that even when you saw one of your own people suffer and die, many of you held fast to the truth about my name and about faith in me and about your faithful witness to me and you did not deny me. You did not turn your back and say, whoa, 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 we didn't realize it was going to cost us this much. We didn't realize so much of our life was going to be disrupted by following you. Wait a minute, maybe we don't need to be as bold or as, as pronounced in our witness to Jesus. Maybe we ought to really back off. Now, we know that such a temptation like that exists because I think some of the other members of this church actually gave into that. And this is what Jesus addresses next. In verse 14, he says, I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Now, for us to understand exactly what Jesus is referring to here, we do, in fact, have to go back into the Old Testament. And I didn't give a lot of insight into the book of Numbers at the time that I was going through some of my Old Testament thoughts, but I'll share a little bit of that with you now just so that you understand what is happening. But if you remember at the beginning of the book of Exodus, the Lord powerfully redeemed and rescued Israel from slavery in Egypt showed himself superior to all of the Egyptian gods by defeating them one by one through the plagues. He freed Israel. He brought them through the Red Sea, destroyed Pharaoh's army, who was angrily and unjustly pursuing Israel to cause them to return to slavery and serve the Egyptians. And the Lord said no. And what you may not realize is that this wasn't just a redemptive story for Israel, but word spreads um, when one nation's God, or in this case, Lord, is capable of rescuing a very small minority nation from oppression and bringing them out into a land of their own, word like this spreads around to other nations saying, wait a minute, this God is pretty powerful. He seems to be wiping the the landscape <laughs> with these other nations. And if we're not careful, we're going to be one of them. And so there was the king of Moab, which is one of the surrounding nations to where Israel eventually found themselves. And his name was Balak. And he was afraid, as were all his leaders in the nation, realizing that this other nation, Israel, is going to demolish everybody in their path. And out of fear, he pursued a, a man named Balaam. Balaam is kind of a weird character. Um, I reread the narrative today just to re-familiarize myself with it, and it's kind of unclear, but Balaam in some sense is, is a man who has access to the Lord. We don't know. He doesn't have Israelite 
heritage. He doesn't have a connection with the Israelite people. But somehow, Balaam is one who can pray to God. God speaks to Balaam. And then Balaam can utter blessings or curses onto people in God's name. And so Balak summons Balaam and he says to him, I want you to curse this people because if you don't curse them, they're going to wipe us out. Israel seems to be pushing people out of their way and going wherever they darn well please and I need you to do something about it. And Balaam says to him, look, I can only speak what the Lord tells me to speak. Um, And so I'll go and I'll inquire of the Lord, but whatever he tells me, that's what I'm going to have to say to this people. And We know from Genesis chapter 12 that the Lord tells Abram, anyone who blesses you, I will bless, and anyone who curses you, I will curse, and then through you, Abram, and through your family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And so we know from Genesis 12 on that the Lord's blessing is on Israel, and that is in fact why they are able to to move and to go as they please, and Balaam is about to figure that out. But what Balaam does is he goes to the Lord and he tries to ask, well, he asks the Lord what he should do. And the Lord says, well, you can't curse these people because they're blessed. They're blessed by me. I in no way am going to curse them. And so Balaam goes back to Balak and says, can't do it, man. Sorry. And Balak offers him more money. He offers him (laughs) all kinds of bribes. And Balaam is like, hmm, well, maybe I can. And so he goes back to the Lord and the Lord is like, what are you doing? I already told you I'm not going to bless these people or I'm not going to curse them rather. Long story short, three separate times, Balak tries his hardest to get Balaam to inquire of the Lord and then to curse the people. And he can't do it. Every time Balaam opens his mouth, another blessing comes out because the Lord has Israel's back. And so Balaam finally comes back to Balak and he says, listen, there's no way you're going to curse this people from the outside. God, God is in favor of them. The Lord is on their side. I'll tell you what, though, the Lord has a particular way that he wants his people to live. And he, in fact, has told them that they need to live in an above reproach type of a way. So I'll tell you what, if you can convince those people to start participating in sinful activities, well, then they'll just put themselves under God's curse all by themselves. You won't have to do anything. He'll deal with them swiftly and with judgment. And it is a very, very strange request, but one that I think you and I could start to understand. And with Jesus's words here in Revelation 2, Jesus said that you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. Now, Balaam's teaching was that if you get the people themselves to commit sin, you will get their Lord to be opposed to them because they are now living in ways that are unfaithful. And I think what Jesus wants us to understand is that one of the number one ways that the enemy seeks to destroy the church is through getting the church to buy into the kinds of mentality and worldviews that he holds in Rome or in Babylon or where he dwells so that they find themselves being opposed by their Lord. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection have guaranteed that Christians have a right standing with God. What the enemy will try to do 
through false teaching, through temptation toward idolatry, or through sexual immorality is to get the church to find themselves at odds with the plan that God has intended for them. This is what Jesus means when he says you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. And he says what? Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. And this is one of the things that I would like to talk about for just a moment. You have here this Antipas, this faithful witness, who because of his public external faithful witness was put to death. And you have some others in the church who remained faithful to Jesus despite seeing that. And so you have this public outward expression of faith. And Jesus says, I commend you because you are doing exactly what I've called you to do, even in the midst of Satan's throne. But now you have Balaam who can't externally critique Israel. They can't, he can't externally do anything to curse Israel. So what he says is under the surface, in the hearts of those people, we could get their hearts to be pulled toward sexual immorality or toward food sacrifice to idols. From the inside, we could infiltrate them and we could cause things to begin to unravel from the inside. And that's precisely what is happening here in Pergamum. And this is interesting because in a culture such as ours, where, the, where Satan's throne is like it was in Pergamum, the sexual immorality was a, an, an invitation to participate in the religious cult in the temples, offering sacrifices, p- performing particular sexual acts in order to make certain things happen. And in our culture today, we are a very, very hyper-sexualized culture. Sexual immorality, sexual practice, sexual conversation, sexual images are all over the place. And there are times when the church views itself as a we, 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 a pillar. We, we stand on the truth. We have a public demonstration of what types of sexual practices are not acceptable and which ones we think might be um, acceptable. And we, we put a public... Um, We put a public stance behind those types of things. But if we take the same mentality that Balaam had to trick Israel and offered to Balak, getting them to commit these sins on the inside, one of the things that Jesus is in fact dealing with here is the fact that in churches, we have some of the same sexual brokenness and sexual dysfunction that is running quite freely and quite rampant in our culture as a whole. And what I've often found is that the church tends to want to stand publicly on their stance of what they think about sexual immorality. And yet what is so sad to me as I observe things from within the church is that very seldom do we or are we open to receiving Jesus's words about sexual brokenness or about sexual immorality into our own hearts about our own lives. And what I'm trying to say is that when we read the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus addresses the fact that the law identifies adultery as a bad thing. But Jesus goes on to say that anyone who commits, who, who looks at a woman with lust in his heart has already committed adultery there in his heart. And so we could say that, yes, you know, Jesus is opposed to sexual immorality. He's opposed to 
um, you know, discussions about gender and discussions about um, transgender things or discussions about homosexuality and, and other manifestations of sexual brokenness in our world. But Jesus isn't as concerned with the pornography addictions that are going on with members of the church or the fact that many men in churches um, stand up and, and act as leaders but are addicted to pornography or are addicted to lust or have some of these same types of behaviors that are going on in the secret places internally, not externally, but internally. And it begins to shape the way we actually can witness in the world. Because if we leave those things in the dark and leave them hidden, we have no ability to compassionately or graciously speak toward other issues on the surface. And Jesus recognizes that there are both of these present in this church. There's faithful witness to him, even in the face of death. And there are others in this church who are saying that one of the ways to avoid these types of persecutions is to just, you know, deal with what they're dealing with here. Like, you know, everybody deals with this. Everybody commits these particular acts in Roman society. Everybody deals with lust or everybody deals with pornography, whatever. It's no big deal. And Jesus is saying, no, wait a minute. These various things are going to put you at odds with me. And I'm going to come to them soon. If they will not repent, I'm going to come and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Now, again, this is not meaning in the second coming, Jesus is going to return and and judge people. You know, I think this means in some sense, he is going to come if they will not repent. He's encouraging them to repent. He's encouraging them to turn from these things. He's encouraging them to bring them out into the open and to recognize that having these internal struggles with idolatry and with sexual immorality is not something that should be present within the lives of his church. They've compromised. They've said, we're going to put a lot of stock in this public profession of Jesus, but what we allow Jesus to deal with internally, we're not so sure we want to go there. I see this a lot in churches today and among Christians. I see a hush-hush conversation about personal and private matters where Christians very, very, where struggle very, very um, badly. But then I see a quick, hey, we just want to you know, publicly stand on the truth and that's the way we want to be. And Jesus is saying, look, my words are meant to penetrate to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. I want to judge the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. I want the words I speak to penetrate you to the very depths of your being. But you got to be honest with me. You got to bring this stuff to the surface. You got to bring it out so that we can deal with it. I don't want to have to come to you and speak words to you of judgment because you've placed yourselves there. I don't want to. And my words aren't here to condemn you. Jesus tells us that in John chapter three. He's not come to condemn the world. He's come to set the world free. And what he says is the reason many people don't come into the light is because they love the darkness rather than the light. And I see this a lot. Lust dwells in the darkness. Sexual immorality dwells in the darkness. Pornography thrives in the darkness. And for Jesus' church to be faithful witnesses to him, like Antipas, and like many who maintained holding fast to Jesus' name, he needs to be able to free us from the things that grip us in the darkness, the things that happen in the inside. And this is precisely what the words of his mouth want to do. He speaks hope. He speaks encouragement. 
but he speaks bluntly. We can either choose to trust him and bring these things into the light, or we can hold on to them, and those very things will keep us away from Jesus in the end. It's direct, but it's truthful. And he doesn't say it to us to, to make us upset, but he's serious. And he says, I'm going to come to some of those people and I will war against them with the sword of my mouth. The words that I speak will sound harsh because they're listening to them as someone who is still caught in the dark. I want them to be free, but we've got to address this because without it, you're not going to be a faithful representation of me on the earth. Jesus concludes his words to the Christians in Pergamum by saying in verse 17, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. And as we looked at in previous episodes, that phrase, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And this is the New Testament's fundamental way of, number one, addressing idolatry and things within our own hearts that might, in fact, prevent us from hearing the truth. And it's very possible that there are some who, because of the um, captured heart in the realm of sexual immorality and having kept that in the dark for so long out of maybe fear that there would be rejection in the church. I know I actually experienced much of that in my own life, being afraid of coming into the light with issues that I was dealing with because I had sort of bought into the idea, really, not not sort of, I guess I bought into it wholesale, that, hey, God expects certain kinds of behavior and you need to give him that kind of behavior and there's no room for error there and um, the humiliation that would accompany another person knowing about your sinful heart and the things that, that are going on in your own life. You better just keep that stuff to yourself and keep it separate. And what happens is by remaining in the dark, by remaining hidden, by remaining in places of shame and guilt, you don't actually have the ears to hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You don't have the ears to hear Jesus' words as compassionate and as caring. You hear him as critical and as judgmental, and you're scared to death to bring forward the things that you actually need to bring to him in order to be set free of those very things. And so he does say, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And then he offers the hope. To the one who conquers, there it is, that, that, that overcomer, to the one who can be victorious here, I will give some of the hidden manna and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on it that no one knows but the one who receives it. And so he offers two promises. He offers to give them some of the hidden manna. And we have looked and talked about this a little bit with the... Um, the tabernacle and being witnesses as lampstands, being witnesses to uh, the bread of the presence. And so some of the hidden manna that Jesus is here referring to, I think, is quite literally himself. Um, he will give us himself. He will give us fully him. And I'm not sure if that sinks into our hearts the way that it should, but if we have eyes, oh, I'm sorry, if we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, for Jesus to give us himself is one of the most tremendous blessings that we could ever hope for. 
And he wants us simply to acknowledge to him, this is what the darkness is. I want you to get rid of it. That's what repentance looks like. It looks like confession. It looks like bringing our darkness and our sinful um, behaviors and actions into the light with him, letting the light of his truth shine into those dark places within us and coming clean with it. That's what repentance is. It is saying, I need your help because I've been trying to deal with this on my own and I'm not getting anywhere. And he says, to the one who overcomes, to the one who actually can show forth that type of repentance, I will give him myself. I won't give you a new law to live by. I won't give you a new set of rules that you're going to have to fight hard against. I will give you me. And then he says, and I will give you a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows but the one who receives it. Well, if the one who receives it is the one to whom Jesus will give the stone, which is what it sounds like to me, then what Jesus is identifying here is something intensely personal. He is saying, I'm going to give you a white stone. Now, white oftentimes refers to purity or sometimes in the book of Revelation, even to to victory. But he is going to give them a white stone. Sometimes uh, judges would... Um, you, you know, they would have a little bag of black stones and white stones and to, you know, the white stone of acquittal or the white stone of you are not guilty is going to be pulled out and, and that's going to decide the case. I'm not sure if that's exactly the image being used here. It's a possibility, but I think the focal point here is the fact that there's going to be a new name written on that stone that no one knows, but the one who receives it, a personal private, special, intimate knowledge between you and Jesus. Because again, the intimate, special knowledge that we have of the kinds of things that Balaam taught Balak to teach the sons of Israel to commit these particular sins, we all have them. We all have those kinds of private sins that nobody knows about but us, we think. And of course, Jesus But he says, just as personal and as private as those things are, and we tend to keep them that way, he says, I'm going to personally know you. Because even in Revelation chapter 19, um, we are told that um, we see one sitting on a white horse, and the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. And so Jesus himself shares with us some of the hidden manna. He shares with us himself. And then in the same way that he is intimately and personally known by the Father, he will make us intimately and personally known by him. You know, none of us is the same. Every one of us is different. And therefore, a relationship with Jesus will, in fact, look different from every single person. But the encouragement that Jesus offers here is that he's calling us to repent of these kinds of things, but he's doing it so that he can continue to give us himself and that he can give us this intimate, close, personal connection with him. This is the way that we are going to become faithful witnesses to him. It's the only way. He wants us to be freed by standing in the light with him so that we can be agents and instruments and lampstands, if you will, of bringing others out of their darkness into the light with him as well. That's his hope. 
That's the goal. If we have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, we can hear it as an invitation to freedom. If we don't have the ears to hear it, we will receive this as nothing but a condemnation. But I don't think that's how he intends these words to come across. And the reason I don't think that is going to show up even more when we get to Revelation 3 and we look at what arguably is the most despicable of all the churches, the church to Laodicea, and to listen to Jesus' words to them because they are tender and they are compassionate and they are personal. And I want us to have the ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches, what Jesus is saying to these churches so that we can be set free from our own darkness and lead others into the light as well. So that's all the time we have for this week's episode. Um, hope to catch you next week as we tune into the letter to the church and Thyatira and what Jesus wants us to understand about that. Until next time, have a great week.